0: This is the English Heritage Podcast.
1: Hello, and thanks again for joining us for your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. This week, we're shining a light on a period of English history often referred to as the Dark Ages. The early medieval period lasted from the mid-5th to the mid-11th centuries AD, which was just over 600 years. This period saw many dramatic changes following the collapse of Roman state control of lowland Britain. Traditionally, we think of the period ending with the Norman conquest of 1066. In between was a time of migrations and far-reaching contacts, Christian conversion, kingdom formation and expansion, and Viking raids and settlement. But archaeological evidence tells us so much more about these fascinating centuries. And joining us for some illuminating discussion on this complex period of English history are...
2: Susan Greeney, I'm Senior Properties Historian for English Heritage.
0: Professor Howard Williams of the Department of History and Archaeology at the University of Chester.
1: Great, thanks for both coming on. This is uh, quite an interesting subject, obviously, because it's called the Dark Ages. We'll, We'll get on to why it's called that a little bit later. Now, as a layperson, much of my knowledge about this period comes from... Amazing objects like the Lindisfarne Gospels, the Sutton Hoo ship burial, which was recently featured in the film The Dig, which I'm sure many of our listeners will have watched. These suggest quite a rich culture and artistry, though. So why does this period sometimes get called the Dark Ages, Howard?
0: The Dark Ages is one of those terms which we're constantly, you know, our starting point for introducing this period is... It gets called the Dark Ages, but here's all the many, many reasons why it wasn't. And so, in many ways, it's obviously a bit of a unhelpful term. And it's mainly used today in the media, in popular settings, or by politicians or popular social media commentators. Even the medical profession use it to sort of talk about regressive policy, backwardness, uh, barbaric actions or practices. You know, it's used in a derogatory sense in our modern culture. But it's also, it must also be said that is generally understood as referring to the period between the Romans and the later Middle Ages. And so it's a term that has stuck in popular parlance, even though it doesn't really get used by academics too much. So, yes, your, your, your point is correct. There's so much rich material... Evidence, visual culture for this period. We've had major new exhibitions. We have many heritage sites where you can access this period. And as you say, from the Lindisfarne Gospels to the Sutton Hoo ship burial, there's just two amongst many. And so, yes, the starting point is to make the point that the Dark Ages is not a term that helps us. Indeed, it was first used in the early 13th century by the Italian scholar Petrarch. And it it became popular again in the 19th and early 20th century as a sort of catch-all term for the 5th to 10th, 11th centuries AD or CE, but in the late 20th to early 21st century, it hardly gets used in academic contexts. Maybe a few literary and historical scholars who really put emphasis on the volume and character of written sources use the term because it does make sense in in that regard that it's a period where we have very few written sources surviving, but Mm. we have so much else to talk about from this period, from the material evidence in particular.
1: Yes, and Sutton Hoo, the ship burial there is um, a significant one, uh, the one in Suffolk. I think people might be familiar with that amazing um, warrior's helmet that uh, was discovered as part of this ship burial and the significant person who was in that ship. How ornate and sophisticated is the workmanship in in that helmet, for example?
0: Well, absolutely. And another thing about the Sutton Hoo princely burial or royal burial from the early 7th century, is that many of the artifacts within it, of course, are nothing to do with the Anglo-Saxons or the island of Britain. Many of them are from far-flung corners of Scandinavia or the Mediterranean. And so part of the debunking the myth of the Dark Ages is not simply pointing out that things were not a regression a backward step as is often portrayed but also that the island of britain retained and extended its many you know contacts that it had in the roman world through the centuries up to the Norman conquest and beyond so this was not a a stop a break a you know a turning off of the lights um, this is used in a, a modern political rhetoric all the time and we have our own myths of apocalyptic scenarios from mad Max to all sorts of other zombie apocalypses in our popular fiction we're obsessed in the early 21st century with the end of our society and what will come next be it due to climate change or other kinds of fictional in you know events but in in, in an actual fact. This was not a period where people living in the fifth century would have seen a moment, you know, where those changes took place. And there would have been constant ongoing trade, communications, contacts, people moving, yes. And the Sun Who Ship burial, getting back to your point, you know, encapsulates that. Yes, it tells us of a very different society from the Roman world, but connections with the Roman world and the ongoing continuation of the Roman Empire and its successor states in the Mediterranean and in northern Europe.
1: Yes, and I think we see this through um Tintagel in Cornwall as well, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. Yes. So I think we've successfully debunked the fact that the Dark Ages is given that name. It's a bit of a misnomer, really, isn't it? Because yes. There aren't the written records that the storytelling the history telling, but there is the rich archaeological evidence and evidence of trade and um fine metals being exchanged and ending up in British shores. So absolutely. yeah so we're happy about that okay (laughs) what about the dark ages today is that do historians call it that today I think there are, as I said, there are a few who do.
0: And I mean, I do occasionally use the term. Indeed, I used it in an edited collection as a title of a book recently, but with a tongue in cheek use, because obviously the whole point about that was I called it digging into the dark ages because it was about how we communicate this story to the public today. And how do we deal with the stereotypes and how do we get people to engage from school kids to People that are new to this island, visitors, as well as local communities, how do we get them engaged with the stories of those centuries? And of course, so I used it in that sort of ironic sense or tongue in cheek sense. Hmm. But it is still, and I do occasionally use it if I'm introducing the period to new people. It's not completely useless. It still has a value of sort of being a catchy term that captures the imagination and makes people think, oh, what's, what's that all about? But beyond that, yeah, it's not used accurate. You won't find many commercial excavators. Digging up early medieval levels, finding new early medieval objects, or indeed many academics writing about the period using the term "Dark Ages" without scare quotes.
1: A better term would be early medieval period
0: oh well you're it's right. a, it's an ongoing area of debate the most neutral term i think most people will accept now is early medieval but there are a host of other terms depending on which parts of these islands you're talking about and in which centuries between the 5th and 11th centuries and there's it's it's one of the messiest periods for terminology with lots of different terms used so in parts of wales you'll talk about in schools there we talk about the age of saints and the early christian period mm. um you know in in england you'll you'll see the mixture of use of English and Anglo-Saxon, both of which have all sorts of problems associated with them. You know, so it all really depends on where you're talking about. There's all sorts of messy terms. But I think in simple terms, early medieval is the most neutral.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, let's move um, forward then. As the Romans have left Britain, uh, the Roman army specifically, state control has ended. And what actually happens at this point, Susan?
2: So traditionally, this has been seen as a time of kind of disaster and uncertainty with lots of unrest and violence with the withdrawal of some of the Roman administration. And it's as early as 383 AD when some of the Roman troops were withdrawn from the northern frontiers of Britain from our sites along Hadrian's Wall, for example. But actually, for the people living here, the relaxation of Roman rule really wasn't necessarily a bad thing. If you can imagine that you've been paying taxes for a very long time and suddenly you don't have to anymore. Maybe it wasn't necessarily a bad thing. So in terms of archaeology, we have a lot less Roman imported pottery from this time. We have a lot less coins because, of course, the Roman army is no longer being paid. But quite a number of our Roman sites do see continuity of use. For example, at Roxeter, where there's a a major Roman town, the Basilica Hall and baths were probably maintained for some periods, perhaps for up to 100 years or so after the end of of Roman rule. Um, And a number of new buildings were constructed at that site. And there's been some new research at that site, actually, that suggests maybe it doesn't continue for that long. But there is at least initially some continuity.
1: Mm. Roxeter's is the Roman city, isn't it, in um, uh, Shropshire? Is that right? In Shropshire. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the the really massive, still existing walls that really suggest how big it was.
2: Yeah, really impressive sites, yeah. yeah. But certainly for some period, there was some continuity there. Um, and there's been some recent research at a, a Roman villa up in the Cotswolds at Chedworth, which suggests that a particular mosaic that has recently been excavated was actually laid down in the 5th century. So uh, oh. suggesting that people were continuing to live relatively comfortable lives in at least this particular villa, refurbishing rooms and and commissioning mosaics so that does suggest that any decline was quite gradual rather than this kind of sudden collapse in everything makes sense Um, doesn't
1: it i mean uh, if you've already got the infrastructure and the property then you're going to use it and perhaps you'll decorate things in the style that you've been accustomed to
2: yeah, and as Howard said, that those links with continental Europe and the Mediterranean do continue throughout this period at a number of our sites and a number of historic places. So it seems that although this sort of centralized organization disappears, what you have is the emergence of regional and local social systems. People start to organize themselves in slightly different ways. And over the, the centuries, you know a number of kingdoms and sort of power structures emerge in different parts. Of the country. So there's quite different things happening in different parts of the country at the same time.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of change. Did you mention Silchester as a former Roman area as well?
2: That's right. So the town at Silchester, um, which is the Roman walls there at Silchester down in Hampshire, still survive and are very impressive to visit. That was a town that was abandoned certainly in the 5th century, although there is an Ogham stone there. So Ogham is a form of early medieval writing. That was common in Ireland and in Western Britain. And that suggests that there was some early medieval occupation and continuity at that site, although it's not particularly well understood at the moment. But generally, that is a town that w- was abandoned in the 5th century.
1: So there's a bit of a mixed picture from what you've been describing. There. There's there's some continuation of, of use of some towns and infrastructure, and then others are sort of abandoned as people, well, as, as, as I suppose the Roman army leaves, and maybe some of Romano-British citizens maybe go as well somewhere, or or they just That's right. go to somewhere yeah. else in ex-Britannia, if we want to call it that.
2: <laughs> yeah, the troops were withdrawn to help defend the empire, essentially against the kind of raiding groups in Central Europe. And, and at the time, you know, that Rome itself was being attacked. So the troops were withdrawn, but also a lot of the kind of administrative Systems came to an end at that time. So the way of life that everybody had been used to for a considerable period did come to an end.
1: Yes. And I think we see this through modern military presences leaving as well, don't we? We've just had the withdrawal from Afghanistan. I suspect things will change in that respect as well.
0: Okay. But I would I would qualify that by also, if I may, saying mm. that uh, Charles, that you know, in in terms of the way we think about Roman Britain, it's important to remember that most of the troops by the late third and fourth century were locally raised and were locally being paid. So they would have had social networks and connections with those local communities. So I don't think we can use this model of an, a 19th, 20th century imperial or colonial presence then literally leaving with its infrastructure in the late 4th, early 5th century, because those soldiers, their families, the, the local governors, they would have been all been local people. So what would have been changing is, yeah, some of the field armies are going with Roman usurpers, emperors claiming the imperial purple in the late Fourth and early fifth century, and yes, barbarian invasions are part of that picture. But actually, what we imagine on a local and regional scale in northern in northern Britain, but also in the lowland sort of more peaceful zone, is the existing infrastructure of and locally, you know, connected social relationships basically persisting with some of that Roman infrastructure. Mm. Although, obviously, some big changes, including the, you know the coinage, the pottery industries, the urban centres, are not surviving the fifth century. They're not going overnight.
1: Mm. Yes, it's a, it's a more sort of nuanced picture, isn't it? Um, yeah. Looking at this sort of nuanced idea of um, people coming and going, we talk about the 5th century in terms of various groups of people from other lands, Angles, yes. Saxons, Jutes. Was it really that simple?
0: Well, I mean, the first simplicity we've already addressed, which is the periodization, There was a Roman Britain and overnight, suddenly the lights go out and there's a dark age. And that is the thing that we often have to debunk. And we say it's more complicated than that, not because we're just trying to be difficult, but because we've got hard evidence to show it's more complicated than that, as Sue was saying. And the second point is, with the second cliche of the fifth century is that the three peoples invaded slash migrated the Angles, the Saxons and the Jutes. And that, there's a complicated story there, but basically what we're, looking at is 8th century and later origin myths. We're not looking at any historical records that tell us about three discrete ethnic groups moving into areas of lowland Britain, invading, taking over and settling. So that's basically 8th century and later fantasy. And most of the way we understand that today is through the lens of 19th century Victorian uh, imaginings of the origins of England, so we can throw all that out the door. But what we can see in the archaeological evidence is a multi-generational process of contact across the North Sea. Now, that had already been there through the Roman period, both controlled and uncontrolled interactions, raids from the Saxons, but also controlled uh, trade and interaction throughout the North Sea world. But the North Sea was a hub throughout late prehistory and the early, you know, in in the Roman period but also it continues to be. And we see the settlement of incoming Germanic-speaking peoples along the eastern coast and the southern coast. And that would have been, as I said, not an invasion, but a multi-generational process of change. And of course, a lot of the local Britons in those areas would have been interacting with those incomers in a whole series of ways. So what we talk about when we talk about the origins of the Anglo-Saxons is, again, a messy process that took over two centuries to emerge. And, And so that's why when we say... it's more complicated that it's not because we're too nervous to say some stark simple facts it's because we've got hard archaeological evidence that this is not the way the simplistic picture of say early 20th century school books 19th century historians would have us believe and the fact is the sad fact is that people still believe in using these models is really tragic in the early 21st century we still have to explain that this is not the case because people aren't really learning this in, in in schools or getting an engagement with this period through archaeological evidence but it's all there we've been talking about this for 70 80 years and we're getting new information and analyses all the time about what was going on
1: well i think a lot of people now stand corrected having learnt all this at school and <laughs> yeah. so i'm really pleased that you've sort of brought that to the fore because um clearly it isn't a case of invasion and settlement at all it's very much more nuanced isn't it
0: I'm not saying it was a peaceful time of harmonious um, mm. interaction between immigrants and indigenous peoples, but equally, I wouldn't say it was a time of constant chaos and where the greatest threat was in incoming barbarian hordes. You know, mm. I, I think we have to see it as a, a multi-generational process of immigration of a range of groups from around the North Sea littoral that included people that became known as Anglo-Saxons and Jutes, but also Frisians. There's also even in the ancient sources refer to a whole host of other barbarian peoples that may have been part. Part of this process including the Franks who were, uh, were forging their kingdom on the continent and may have had more of an intervention into southern Britain than our nationalistic history would admit particularly at this time as you can probably guess we perhaps are, are less confident in accepting our across-channel uh, connections but yeah the Franks may have been very influential in the development of kingdoms in, in Sussex and Kent and also in
1: Essex and East Anglia too. Hmm. So let's look at some of the key English heritage properties that date from this period, the 5th century, and how they relate to those stories. So can you give us a few highlights?
0: Oh, well, the thing about English heritage sites, you've got such a wonderful, rich, was it on your website, 383 at least. And the challenge for the Dark Ages or the early Middle Ages is that you don't have in your types of place, you can't search for them because there is no single type of place that dates to this period. You know, when we think of Romans, we think of the military sites, we think of the villas, we think of the cities like Roxeter and Silchester, as we've discussed. When you think of the later Middle Ages, you think of castles and abbeys or monasteries. Yeah. So these are type sites that we can go, oh, I want to go and see, see a castle. You know, I want to go and see a Roman villa. But of course, the Dark Ages of the early Middle Ages isn't neat. It doesn't sit into that. So I was going to just make a quick point that, yes, many of these sites we call Roman also have Early medieval or Dark Age phases. On Hadrian's Wall, we have the site of Bird Oswald, which has continued occupation into the at least the fifth century, if not beyond. Hmm. In, in the city I, I work in, I don't live it; I live across the border in Wales. I uh, admit, but in Chester, our amphitheatre and the church next to it, Saint John's Priory, may have sixth, seventh-century origins in the period we're talking about. Hmm. And just jumping to the other extreme, so Roman sites continue to have early medieval phases, but also many of the the late medieval, you know, famous abbeys and priories also have early medieval pre-Norman conquest roots, such as Much Wenlock, Ely, Bury St Edmunds, Glastonbury Abbey, and Lindisfarne Priory. And that's a great example because, of course, this is one of the the first and most important monasteries of the Anglo-Saxon kingdom of Northumbria. But the ruins we're looking at when you visit Lindisfarne today are all, obviously, of the later medieval structure that then is dissolved with the dissolution of the monasteries in the sixth, early 16th century. I mean, yeah, there's a wonderful sculpture you can see in the fabulous English Heritage Museum and Visitor Centre there that date from the 8th and 9th centuries, and there's ongoing excavations by Durham University. But, you know, most of what the visitor sees is later. So I suppose the Dark Ages, for an English heritage visitor, do require the imagination. You have to think about the later phases of the Roman sites and you have to think of the origins of many of those later medieval monasteries and abbeys, churches, cities, towns that have their origins in this period. So we're still living in a Dark Age landscape, so to speak, but it's very difficult
1: to get at those fragments what what do you think susan were you going to mention lidford as a place as well
2: yeah so actually just jumping back to lindisfarne I mean, it's one mm. of the classic places that we think about when we think about the viking raids which were of course another feature of this period and the impact and the raids and the subsequent settlement by people from the scandinavian area obviously had a you know enormous impact on parts of the country and it it was in 793 that Lindisfarne suffered its kind of major and supposedly you know first although that's not necessarily the case attack which so shocked the Christian world that this home of the of a saint and an uh, important church could be with royal connections as well could be attacked mm. and other sites like Whitby also have a history of being subject to Viking raids and, and both Whitby and Lindisfarne the communities of monks actually ended up moving inland, partly in response to these raids, just because it it was such a sort of turbulent time for them. But yeah, Lidford is a a small village on the western edge of Dartmoor. And it's a site that one of our free sites that perhaps not many of our listeners may have heard of. But it's one of four towns in Devon that is described as burrs in the ninth century. So these are defended towns. And actually at Lidford, you can still see the rather impressive earthworks that surround the now much smaller village. And these earthworks were built to defend. They were built to defend the settlement from the main roadway that is the way that you approach the site. It's it's rather well defended by a natural gorge on the other side. And we know that in 997, an attack supposedly by the Vikings was repelled. So it was a successful defensive system there. And it's one of the few places where we can see the evidence of those earthworks still in place. And because the village, it, it was a rather substantial town and later became the site of a royal mint, et cetera, but is now a a rather sleepy and beautiful little village. So it it hasn't expanded out over those defences as has happened in many other towns and cities. Hmm. But yeah, so there's certainly evidence for, in a sense, the rather turbulent history in this time as well. And it's one of those, as Howard was saying, it's quite difficult to pick out specific sites that kind of encapsulate the immense kind of comings and goings i guess of this yes, period because yes, it true. because very few of them left solid evidence a lot of the buildings of this period would be timber built and they wouldn't necessarily have been stone built like some of the earlier roman material and so you know these are these are things that we find archeologically as a, as ditches and banks and post holes etc but they're not necessarily things that you can now go and visit and survive in the landscape today
0: May I cheekily point out some other ways in which the Dark Age hides in plain sight, Charles? Yes, uh, a absolutely. good example. A good example for me is Portchester Castle, which is a late Roman a Saxon shore fort. It's called that mm. Saxon shore fort. It's a late Roman coastal fort, but it also has a later Saxon Thainley site that was excavated. But there's nothing to see because, as Sue said, it's all. It would have all been timber, and then it's a Norman castle. Another example I wanted to share was, of course, while we think of it as uh, our premier prehistoric uh, monumental complex, uh, the Stonehenge landscape has lots of evidence of early medieval activity, including evidence that both the place name of Stonehenge may come from the old English for a a stone hanging place, a stone gallows. And we have actual radiocarbon dated Anglo-Saxon burials from Stonehenge that Mm. look like they were deviant burials. They were killed and buried there as a place that was set aside for the execution of people. (laughs) So, you know, my point is that it's it's hiding in plain sight, the Dark Ages, the early Middle Ages. There's so many English heritage sites where you can get a glimpse of it, many multi-phase sites where, yes, it's prehistoric, it's Roman, but it has later medieval and modern counterparts, elements to it. But in that period of the 5th to 11th centuries, there's stuff going on too. Yes. Mm. Sorry, just to jump in that this is a
2: period when quite a lot of our properties get their names. Yeah. I'm thinking of somewhere like Grimes Graves, which is a prehistoric flint mining site, but has Grimm's Howe, which is the 100 meeting point, which is selected as a kind of administrative center in, in the medieval period. But we believe that you know Grimm being the pagan god and that the name is attached to the site in that period, in that early medieval period.
0: Yeah, think- absolutely. And you have to, mm-hmm. I have to jump back in, if I may, and say that, of course, the complement to that is Wayland Smithy on the Berkshire Ridgeway, which is obviously an early Neolithic uh, multi phase chambered monument, chamber tomb, but it's a place name. It's linked to the the story of the Smith Wayland being captured and imprisoned and making art, amazing artifacts and the story of his revenge on the king that imprisoned him. So that seems to have been placed in the landscape as a, a piece of legend by the 11th, 12th centuries and may have 10th and earlier century roots. Not necessarily because it was a pagan site of worship, as some people have suggested to me, but because it was a place that had was already thousands of years old, a ruinous monument that captured and attracted new stories in the period
1: we're talking about. Mm. As you say, it's it's all hiding in plain sight in the landscape. And if you look deep enough and you peel back the layers beyond what's already there, you can find these stories. It's just you just need to dig, so to speak. Absolutely, <laughs> <laughs> literally sometimes. But going back to the um, early Christian side of things, with the uh, monasteries and the uh, uh, early Viking raids of places like uh, Lindisfarne. You've talked about these early Christian churches. I'm right in saying that the Romans did practice Christianity, didn't they, towards the end of Roman rule?
0: Absolutely and at sites like Lullingstone Roman Villa, an English heritage site, you can see a Christian late Roman aristocratic family, you know, who have an overt Christian presence in the architecture and the material culture of that late Roman villa. So yeah, but the fourth century Roman Britain was officially Christian, although of course a range of other religious practices would have been going on mm. and and the story of the early middle ages is a story of what happened to christianity in those centuries too because in many ways it probably never went away and probably it, it uh, explicitly didn't in terms of the continued use of latin and probably the establishment of ecclesiastical sites in western britain But also the development of those sites through the 6th, 7th centuries is a very hazy picture. And scholars will disagree with my characterization here. But my point is that, yeah, that doesn't go away. And we see the development of these sites in the 7th, 8th, ninth, and 10th centuries. Yeah, they're knocked about a bit by Viking raids. They're knocked about a bit by raids from other kingdoms, rival kingdoms, because Christianity was always embedded in the political structures. But it's true to say that these, these many of our later medieval Christian sites have the have dark age or early medieval origins.
1: Hmm. Okay. We've spoken in a previous podcast about Tintagel Castle in Cornwall. We talked about it a little bit earlier. How does this site fit into the early medieval story, Susan?
2: So we should first mention that Cornwall doesn't quite have the same level of Roman occupation as some other parts of Britain. There are some forts, the most westerly one is at St Austell, actually fairly recently discovered. But On the whole, it it does seem to have kept some continuity with the Iron Age. And we have a couple of settlements at Carnuni and at Chaisorsta, where we know that essentially Iron Age styles of living in in stone structures continue really into the early Roman period and that trade with Roman areas in terms of things like pottery and uh, metalwork continues there. But in essence, there's a slight difference with the western part of Cornwall, um, with the rest of England at least. And Tintagel is famous for its castle. So what we're talking about here is activity that happened on that headland way before the castle was built in the 13th century. And we know that from the 5th century onwards, so from this kind of post-Roman period that we've been talking about, Tintagel emerges as a significant settlement and what seems to be a relatively high status site. Hundreds and hundreds of sherds of Mediterranean pottery and glassware has been found on the site. And in fact, this type of relatively high status material is found at a number of sites throughout Western Britain. But at Tintagel, the the quantities are just enormous. And it's by far the kind of largest quantities are found at Tintagel. Mm. And so it seems to be part of a trading network. It seems to be um, involved in the trade of these luxury goods, presumably, and the things that were contained in them, things like amphora with uh, with wine or olive oil or, or fish sauce in them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that trade was with Mediterranean, but also with places in Spain and in France as intermediate uh, sites and harbours. And so it's generally understood to have been a royal site in, in essence. So when I'm talking about royal, I don't mean, you know, the whole of England, I'm talking about the local uh, regional administration really that emerged in the post-Roman period. And it's sort of likely to be that the rulers of Domnonia, which was the kind of Cornish and Devon regional area, were probably based at Tintagel, or at least part of Tintagel. They were probably moving around quite a lot, but were based at Tintagel for some of the year. So we've got this incredibly important site, the remains of which are still visible to see today. If anyone visits Tintagel, they will notice that there are these low walls, which represent the buildings of that period, some of which were reconstructed to make them more more obvious after excavation from the 1930s onwards. But we have this incredibly important settlement occupied, it seems, from the 5th to perhaps the 7th centuries AD. And this is the place where really the later legends that are attached to Tintagel Castle stem from. So the fact that Geoffrey of Monmouth describes Tintagel as being the place where King Arthur was conceived is probably because he has some indication that it was an important high status defended site at this time. Um, and I should say it was defended as well. There was a bank and a ditch dug across the neck of the headland where the settlement was located. So this is a site that had a harbour and was trading with far off places, but it was also defending itself against incursions from inland as well.
1: Our understanding of Tintagel being this trading hub and being quite a significant Place for, as you say, like a like a king or, or a royal, uh, some significant leader. How new is that knowledge? Is it dating well, from the 1930s? Or
2: no, actually, in the 1930s, Bradford, who was excavating the site, believed it was a site of an early Christian monastery. It's really only been, I guess, in the last 30 years or so that interpretations have changed. And in fact, we have been leading on some new excavations that took place at Tintagel in 2016 and 2017, analysis of the material from which is still ongoing. So the picture is, is still emerging in a way. It was in the 1990s that excavations, new excavations on the site really questioned this idea that it was an early Christian monastery and and overturned that interpretation, really. But we still have a huge number of questions about that settlement, about when exactly it was occupied, what sort of settlement it was. Was it seasonal? Was it a permanent town? Who was living there? What kind of lifestyles they were living? So part of this more recent excavations has been to try and answer some of those questions. And to sort of shed a bit more light really on, on this quite complex and, and little understood period. Mm. Um, so the, the work in 2016 and 17 was involved excavations, two trenches in two previously unexcavated areas of the settlement where earthwork surveys and geophysical survey had indicated the presence of these early medieval buildings. And the excavations revealed quite surprising, I think, to the to the team. So this was an English Heritage Project in collaboration with a Cornwall Archaeological Unit surprising to us on the team leading it, that they revealed rather substantial buildings, you know, really well built walls, laid pathways, laid floors, and lots and lots of finds, not only these Mediterranean tablewares and glasswares, but also rather handily for us, given that this is cornwall and generally bone doesn't survive, a really nice midden full of animal bones and fish bones and oyster shells, which gives us a really nice picture of what people are eating and how they're living. So these excavations are still being analysed, but indications from some of the finds that were found, in particular, a large piece of pottery that was found in one of the buildings, um, which is known as bar lug pottery, which is a particular type of Cornish pottery, which dates from the 7th to the 10th centuries, it's believed. And a couple of other finds from Merovingian glass, for example, suggest that actually occupation of the site continued on quite a long time after the period we'd thought. So Previously, we'd thought 5th to 7th centuries, but maybe we're looking at 7th, 8th, possibly even later occupation on the site. And what's really exciting about the new research is that we're going to get new radiocarbon dates, which will hopefully confirm exactly when people are occupying these buildings. So it's kind of extending our knowledge, really, about this period of post-Roman occupation. And it does seem to have lasted a bit longer than we previously thought.
1: Well, we look forward to that research being published and uh a bit more flesh being put on the bones of the story, so to speak. Susan, though, you've got some experience of presenting how the story is told of Tintagel to visitors. Can you tell us a bit more about that?
2: Yeah, so back in 2014, I think, I uh, started to work with a project team here at English Heritage to completely revisit all of the visitor information and interpretation at Tintagel. What was there previously was rather tired and actually rather confusing because it didn't really give you a huge amount of information about what you were looking at. And it didn't really explain this whole link with King Arthur, which if anyone's visited Tintagel, you will know that it has a very strong association with, with King Arthur. And our interpretation just really left people with less knowledge, I think, than when they first arrived. So we did a a major project. We had a a new exhibition that opened there in 2015. And then the following year, we installed a a series of on-site interpretation panels and a number of artistic installations, which all were trying to help people understand the site and and its multi-phase, kind of quite complex history. Mm -hmm. And so as part of the work to develop that project, we sort of came up with four key stories that were made up part of the history And what we wanted to try and get across particularly was that the archaeology and the history is completely intertwined with the stories and the legends that are attached to the site. You can't, as I think previous kind of generations of English heritage and its predecessors had tried to do, which was sort of slightly poo-poo the legend and just say, well, we just need to focus on the archaeology and not really think about this spurious connection with King Arthur, actually if you look at the history, the legends and the and the, and the stories are completely intertwined. So the reason it, it attracts these stories and ha- has these legends is because of this early important history of the site. Yes. The reason that Earl Richard of Cornwall built his castle there in the 13th century is because it has these connections to King Arthur and to these legends. And then, of course, the site becomes important for those stories later on when people like Tennyson visit and, and write idylls of the king. And you can't really separate the two. Yeah. So we came up with four sort of Parts of the exhibition. One was was the legend. Start with the legend. There's the King Arthur legend of his conception at the site, but also the story of Tristan and Isolde, which is an equally fascinating and wonderful story that is set at Tintagel. There's the royal stronghold and the trading settlement that we've just been talking about, that fifth to seventh centuries in the, the so-called Dark Ages. Then you have the castle, the medieval castle built by Earl Richard, and then you have the kind of later history of the site, which is when the site becomes, you know, attractive, particularly in the Victorian period for all of these different stories and our artistic responses.
1: Did they use the term dark ages in this in the way that this information was presented to visitors at the time? and was was there any fallback from that, Any? Yes,
2: yeah, so I I mean I wrote the interpretation, so yes, I did use the term dark ages. I think there are a number of reasons for choosing to do that. as we've just discussed, it, it's not a perfect term at all and it wasn't that I didn't understand that. It's just for the members of the public understanding that there is two major phases to the archaeology of the site. There's a medieval castle, which people perhaps fairly easily understand what a medieval castle is all about. And then there's this earlier period. And although I now know that perhaps that was the wrong decision, to me, Dark Ages is very evocative. It's very intriguing. Mm. It immediately makes you want to know more. And what we do in that exhibition and in the wider interpretation on the site is really show that this period wasn't dark at all. This is a period when People on this site are trading with the Mediterranean and they're living a relatively, what seems to be a relatively luxurious lifestyle with all these imported goods. So in some ways, I guess it was a way of dividing up the history of the site and a way of capturing that. Now, yes, this it was a problem and several historians and archaeologists picked up on the term and the fact that we'd used it and actually led a kind of campaign to stop English heritage from using the term. There was even a hashtag on social media, hashtag stop the dark ages. <laughs> and it was felt that continuing to use this obsolete, value-laden term was was a problem. And it, you know, it, it presents a sort of ladybird book kind of version of English history, I guess, that was thought to be unhelpful. And this idea that the period was dark and backwards and unknown, rather than this, you know, extraordinary time of flourishing Mm. art and culture and migration and invasion etc so yeah I think we could have probably done more in that exhibition about sort of explaining that it's the so-called dark ages but obviously it wasn't really dark and you know I think that we perhaps could have done more but I do think it's very difficult and and I think it's easier in some ways for academics to say well we don't use the term but that's because they have whole books and lecture courses to explain why the term isn't that useful, when you have an exhibition, the entire word length of which is only a thousand words, it's quite difficult to get some of this nuance and this complexity across.
1: It is difficult because you're trying to appeal to an audience who is not a historian, doesn't know all the facts, hasn't been digging around in trenches looking for finds and these sorts of things. They've probably just come with their family or the grandchildren or something, and they've heard about it while they were at school, and they just need it told to them in a language that they understand. So, it's, yeah, it's a really difficult thing. And you can also blame the person, the culture way back in history, which coined the term, because it, it's kind of stuck, isn't it? So... Can, I, can I add a point there, Charles? Is yeah, I, I mean, I, I, Sue concedes it was the wrong decision.
0: I'm not really sure I, I agree with that. I, I think I was also critical of the use of the term and the selection to use the term. But to, I don't think we've got to a point where we're saying it's the wrong decision is fair or appropriate. Because as you say, Charles, you know, it's about engaging audiences. Mm-hmm. And w- by using this popular term, which was laden, problematic, and, you know, it's really not used in academia, but has a popular cachet it has a has a has a use and, and a power um, i did avoid various other terms that would have been even worse <laughs> and uh you know they didn't use terms that would have not respect the cornish southwest british context of the site including anglo-saxon english you know it's an english heritage site but it's not in an area that is speaking old English mm. in this period yeah. and it's certainly there's the evidence of contacts but there's not this is a very different part of what is to become England and so you know I have to just defend English heritage a bit more than Sue is, is suggesting because I do think that while the term had problems and I understood the criticisms of it yes it's all very well academics doing that but they don't have to do the job of communicating to the public so I think I think that I don't necessarily agree it was the wrong decision is what I'm trying to say I I think it it avoids other problems, is what I would say. Yes. I think the whole process did lead
2: to a really useful discussion, though, actually, because at the time we were using Dark Ages quite liberally on our website and in our members handbook, for example, as one of our kind of time periods within what we called the story of England and i do think actually that the sort of reassessment of how we were using the term because of the controversy was useful and actually we did end up changing that so that if you now look at the period on our website in our handbook and other materials we use early medieval which is yeah. a much more neutral catch-all term for the period which is in some ways more useful as a general theme for the period you know it's a, it's a much more useful term but actually at specific sites as i think howard's already mentioned the early medieval and med- medieval is not that different you know set of two periods so it becomes quite complicated where you have for example a medieval monastery at a site like Lindisfarne for example built on top of an early medieval significant site or a medieval castle like at Tintagel where you've built the castle is built on top of an early medieval settlement the fact that those things are a very very long time period apart and very very different rather merges if you call it early medieval and medieval in the minds of visitors. So it it is tricky and I think it does have to be thought about quite carefully and I guess kind of bespoke solutions come up with for each of the different properties that we interpret for visitors. Absolutely
0: Hmm. for me it would be the same issue as if you had a Roman site and you said oh and there's some later phases that are post-Roman the visitor's going to go what what's post-Roman is you know (laughs) it's the same (laughs) issue is that we might use that in an archaeological report but no one visiting it is going to understand what that means so we have to make adaptions to local sites yes absolutely.
1: I was just about to come up with a a phrase that would hopefully encapsulate the the renaming of the dark ages and i was going to say the post romano mystery years or something (laughs) but um i don't think that's going to work (laughs) because now we've alienated people who don't know what post romano means so um it's really difficult isn't it um you talked about some terms that could be used but early medieval seems to be the best one really just to sort of encompass all the different things that are happening we're talking about 600 years as well aren't we yes and it varies depending
0: on the regions and the problem with early medieval i, ha- I didn't say earlier on is that for many historians in these islands early medieval means the late 11th to thir- early 13th centuries in other words it means the beginning of the later middle ages so there is a, you know you'll find older reports from the 60s 70s even the 80s and 90s and some historians of castles and and the like who still talk about early medieval to mean norman Right. So, you know, there is every term has its problem is my point, but I think early medieval is the least of many evils. <laughs> Gosh, and that's
1: that's up to future historians to then understand <laughs> what they're actually reading when they come across these um interpretations of history. Indeed. What a nightmare. Um, so <laughs> does it does it help or hinder to think of England existing at all during this period? Well I, I that's the other in, in terms of nightmare. Cornwall or not. Yeah.
0: no no i mean this is the other problem because i mean the period is is characterized by fragmentation into local regional polities that emerge in the from the f- 5th and 6th centuries into larger 7th 8th century kingdoms that are most of them are knocked out as independent entities during the viking age and england emerges following the dislocation of the ninth century. So really, England as a term and English as a term really don't make much sense for these centuries. So that's another reason why Dark Age Britain at least gets you out of that problem. I'm not saying it's perfect, but at least you don't have to worry about that. But yes, so England really is formative in this period and is an idea and then a a political reality really only in the last century and a half. And even then you can break it down and talk about the complications within the 10th and 11th century, when of course there was, uh, for large parts of which there were Danish kings on, on the English throne, and mm. so on. But my point would be, my simple crude point is that the term English and England, English for people, England for a geographical space, are really a messy and complicated for this period too. That's why for so long, even though it's outdated in itself, so many people have advocated retaining the term Anglo-Saxon. Because while some scholars are very angry about the fact that, particularly in North America, this is used in a very racialized way, and in other parts of the world too, at least it's an anachronistic term that doesn't connect modern England, uh, as in England today, football team, you know, regions, government, with a very messy, complex story of these early medieval centuries. And so I suppose that's why all of the terms for this period are heavily contentious depending on who you talk to. Because we can talk about England in terms extending into parts of what are now Scotland and into what are now Wales (laughs) in this period, but Mm -hmm. you wouldn't dare talk about them in terms of modern parlance because you'd get people very upset. So it's, it's about being careful and cautious and critical about where we use these terms and for what.
1: Would the Normans have referred to Anglo-Saxon England as England at this time? This is this is right at the end of this yeah, yeah, medieval the, period.
0: Yeah, Engaland is a, is an entity in a kingdom. Yes, as an entity at the point of the Norman Conquest, and for 150 years, that's quite a big period. That's like equivalent to us back to the Victorian age. Would have been a concept and a and a, and, a, and, a, and a king, and kings would have claimed that title, and they varied their titles. But you know, England was. A kingly title and, and and a kingdom to be conquered, <laughs> right. but back projecting that to understand the mess that is, say, eighth-century Britain, where the biggest polity was Mercia, the stretched from the Wash to the Thames to the Severn to the Dee, that four corners of the four estuaries, that central English space was mm-hmm. a kingdom called Mercia that didn't survive as an entity as an independent kingdom to the Norman conquest. Trying to call that English or England, you know, really confuses people, and people from the West Midlands get a bit upset when you talk about it as england in that period because you know there's regional pride in that heritage so you know we have to just be nuanced about these things i think and just be sensitive to the different peoples today and the people's what past would have said and thought about their regions and their identities, but it's often we don't know what people called themselves, of course.
1: Yeah. What do you think is so fascinating then about this period? I suppose it's the fact that we can continuously debate um, which kingdom belonged to what and uh, what oh, we called absolutely. it. And are there any other things that you find fascinating about it?
0: I'd like to hear Sue's response to this first of all, because she's. Uh, <laughs> what do you think, Sue? <laughs> oh
2: well, I guess I ought to make a bit of a confession here: is that. I'm a prehistorian so I am fascinated by periods that don't have written sources. So um my fascination with prehistory is that we don't know and there are lots of intriguing ways to use the evidence in lots of different ways to find out but also to use our imaginations. And that applies as much to the early medieval period as it does to prehistory really. Mm. So I guess for me, it's the fact that archaeology is the main way that we find out about this period. And the exciting thing for me is that with archaeological techniques, radiocarbon dating, isotope analysis, ancient DNA, we're able to answer some of the questions now about this period with that evidence. And that's absolutely fascinating to try and tease apart all of these different stories, to look at the nuance, to look at particular sites and cemeteries and collections and communities, to kind of try and get that complexity and get a sense of what's going on and that i mean that's what's really exciting about the tintagel excavations is it's giving us absolutely brilliant new evidence for that site and that shows how much there is still f- for us to learn and it's really only archaeology that's going to be telling us those stories
0: i couldn't agree more it's just absolutely spot on sue i mean i was a proud prehistorian in my undergraduate days at the university of sheffield's department of archaeology and prehistory and I was fascinated by the study of the Paleolithic and the Neolithic, but then I was inspired by lecturers that crossed over and talked about the Roman and early historic periods, of the early Middle Ages, including Professor John Moreland, who's, who's at Sheffield still. And I really liked the fact that this is a period where it's contentious. It's a mess. Not everyone knows it. There's cliches, there's stereotypes that are there that we have to constantly challenge and debunk. And there are new discoveries all the time. I mean, this year alone we found that the redating of the Cern Abbas Hill figure, the chalk hill figure in Dorset, often assumed to be early modern, you know, Cromwellian or after 17th century in date, or thought to be prehistoric, is now seemingly a later Anglo-Saxon, in other words, early medieval Chalk Hill figure. So there's always familiar sites are getting their stories retold, their origins, their later histories. And this period is pivotal for people today in not always positive ways, but we need to tell those stories to counter myths and misconceptions, but also to show how archaeology is really building the blocks of understanding who we are through this period. So yeah, I love it because it's a mess, but also because it has so many different scales of story from the, the small finds on one site to the many international connections these islands have in these centuries. So it's fun.
1: Yes, fun, fascinating, and I think there's plenty of mystery in the history, which I think uh, is a good way to end. (laughs) Thanks very much for talking to us, both of you. Really interesting discussion. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll be back to discover the explosive history of English Heritage's remarkable Artillery Collection. I'm going
0: to say about 300. They sit at, I think it's 31 sites that I've counted. You can travel the full length of the country and, and still keep seeing cannon at
1: our sites. Thanks for listening. See you next time.